Please take your Bibles and uh, open them to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we uh, continue our study of this magnificent uh, book of Hebrews. And chapter 9 continues the theme uh, that we've been looking at in chapters 7 and 8, which is how the new covenant, which was put into effect at Christ's death, is so much superior to the old covenant. And let's remind ourselves why this was so important to the original readers of this book. They were Hebrew Christians. Uh, For many years in their lives, uh, they had lived under the old covenant. They had practiced all the ceremonies, rituals, the animal sacrifices. But now, having come to know Christ, you know, they had the question, well, do we still have any obligation to the old system? And in light of persecution, they were even tempted to retreat from following Christ and to go back to their old religious practices. The writer wants the readers to see the sheer absolute foolishness of abandoning the greater new covenant with all of its blessings in Christ for the lesser old covenant, which has actually been made obsolete by the coming of Christ. And of course, what's the benefit for you and I today? To discover the wonderful blessings that are ours through uh, the new covenant. Now in today's message, we're going to examine the first 14 verses of chapter 9, which climaxes in how the new covenant achieves something the old covenant could never achieve, the cleansing of man's conscience from the guilt and stain of sin. So again, please follow in your sermon notes as I've tried to do the last few weeks. These chapters 7, 8, and 9 can be somewhat uh, difficult because we're not familiar with the terminology. It's talking so much about the Old Covenant. So uh, my goal has been to try to keep this as simple as I can. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. I don't want us to get so lost in the details that we miss the main points, and that's where I will try to emphasize. So notice first the limitations, the limitations of Old Covenant worship, because that's what's going to be uh, contrasted in chapter 9, New Covenant worship over against Old Covenant worship. And the first limitation of Old Covenant worship is that it was confined to an earthly tabernacle. It was confined to an earthly tabernacle. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, referring to the old covenant, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly tabernacle or the earthly sanctuary. And of course, that earthly sanctuary is referring to what? The Old Testament tabernacle. Now, what was the Old Testament tabernacle? Simply, it was a portable worship center that literally was constructed by the children of Israel under the oversight of Moses. And, of course, Moses got his directions from God himself. The fact 
that the Old Testament tabernacle was an earthly tabernacle simply means it was made by the hands of men and that it could be put up and taken down to accommodate the earthly travels of God's people. And being an earthly sanctuary, it is very obvious that it had a number of limitations. It had to be continually repaired, like anything that you can touch, anything that's material in this life. It was limited geographically. If it was put in one place, it's obvious it could not be in another place. As the people moved, it had to be totally dismantled, and the various parts had to be carried. And then when they arrived at their new location, it had to be erected again. And this this was repeated over and over and over again uh, by the children of Israel uh, in their uh, wilderness days. And, of course, a significant limitation was that the tabernacle belonged to the children of Israel and not to the whole world. Everything about the Old Testament tabernacle suggested it was meant to be just temporary. And we'll see why in the next point. Because it was full of symbols, but no reality. Another limitation of old covenant worship. It's full of symbols, but there is no spiritual reality. Look with me at verses 2 through 5. Again, we'll see some of this terminology that we're not real familiar with, but hopefully I can make this simple for you. It says, For there was a tabernacle, referring to that Old Testament tabernacle, prepared, the outer one, in which were were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, and this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. You know, folks, it's uh, absolutely amazing that 50 chapters in the Old Testament focus on the Old Testament tabernacle. 50? I mean, think about it. There's only two chapters that deal with creation. 50 chapters on the Old Testament tabernacle. So although it was earthly, although it was temporary, it had great importance. And why was it so important? And I can make this very simple for you. It was just a huge portrait of Jesus Christ. Everywhere you looked in the tabernacle, all you saw was Jesus. And uh, who He was, what He would accomplish when He would come to earth. And this is why we read in verse 9, you'll notice that the outer tabernacle is a, and you probably want to circle that word, it's a what? A symbol for the present time. And in verse 24, we read, a holy place made with hands, a mere copy. Circle that word copy. So see, the Old Testament tabernacle was a symbol, it was a copy. Another place is called a pattern. And it, and it provided this beautiful portrait of Jesus, uh, pointing the people to their Messiah who would come to take away the sins of the world. Now, the tabernacle, let me just give you a little overview of the tabernacle. For some of you, this will be a review. Some of you, this will be uh, brand new. Uh, The Old Testament tabernacle consisted of three primary sections. There was an outer court, just a huge open area where you could see the the blue sky. 
And then uh, the tabernacle itself within that outer court had two sections, what was called the holy place and the holy of holies. The outer court, to give you an idea of dimension, is very small really, the, the whole setup. Uh, 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. That was the outer court. The outer court was entered through a single gate, and it was the only entrance into the tabernacle. And that was a picture of what? That there's only one way to God, and that door is Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says what? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is exclusive, not because man has made it so, but because God has made it so. And it's only through Christ that we experience salvation. As I mentioned, the outer court was simply an uncovered area. And in that outer court, you would find two pieces of furniture, just two. First, there was the altar. And the word altar in the Hebrew literally means the place of putting to death. And as you can imagine, it was there at the altar that the Old Testament priests would offer the animal sacrifices. And what do you think the altar was a symbol of, looking forward? The cross. The cross where Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is without blemish, uh, would offer his life uh, for the sins of the world. Now, the only other furniture in the outer court was the, uh, it was called the basin or the laver. It was just a basin or a laver filled with water. And it is there that the priest would wash their hands as they would about the very bloody business of doing animal sacrifices. And the laver was a symbol or was a picture of Jesus as the cleanser of his people. Even after receiving forgiveness of our sins through Christ's sacrifice, we still need daily cleansing in order to restore fellowship with God, in order to restore the joy of our salvation. What does 1 John 1, 9 tell us to believers? If we what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, as you move across the open courtyard, you would come to the actual tabernacle itself, again, which was divided into the two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. It was a totally enclosed structure. Again, very, very small. It was 45 feet long. It was 15 feet wide and 15 feet uh, high. So 45 long, 15 feet high and wide. Uh, The holy place was also called at times the outer sanctuary, and it was entered by going through the first veil. And this is very important because this is going to come up a little bit later. The only individuals that could go through that veil into the holy place were the priests of Israel. Only the priests. No common person could go. So the priests were the only ones that could minister within the holy place. Now, the other section, which was known as the Holy of Holies, was a perfect 15-foot cube. And, uh, and, of course, that is where there was God's immediate presence. And, uh, and who could enter the Holy of Holies? The high priest. Only the high priest. Only one man in the entire nation. And he could only enter how often? 
once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would make sins, uh, when he would uh, sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. Now, in the holy place, and this is where we're getting into our uh, text today, verses 2 through 5, there were three pieces of furniture. And again, all mentioned in the verses we just read. There was the lampstand, uh, the table of sacred bread, and the altar of uh, incense. Now, get uh, down in your notes how these uh, pictured Jesus. The lampstand provided the only light for the priest as they ministered in the holy place. And, of course, it was a symbol of what? Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the light of the world. The table of sacred bread always had 12 loaves on it. One loaf representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Sabbath, every Sabbath day, the priest would remove the old loaves and replace them with fresh loaves. And then the priest, and only the priest could do this, they would eat the bread. And they had to eat the bread inside the tabernacle. And the bread was known as the bread of God's presence. Uh, the twelve loaves, of course, reminded the children of Israel of God's presence uh, that had sustained them. And, of course, it is a symbol of what? Jesus being the bread of life uh, that would be given uh, to the whole world. Now, the altar of incense is where the priest would burn incense. And he would do this every morning and every evening, signifying just continual prayer going up before God. The altar of incense is a symbol of what? Of Jesus, our great and faithful high priest, who is our what? Who is our intercessor, who uh, sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, continually interceding for you and I, uh, for his uh, children. Now, just a note for you very observant people, because I'm sure there's some of you out there. In Hebrews 9, the writer places the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies. And that confuses a lot of people. For example, if you go back to Exodus 30, uh, when the uh, uh, instructions were being given, that was to be placed in the holy place. But there's really no contradiction. And the reason, the way this is resolved, on the Day of Atonement, on that one day out of every year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, on that day, he would take the altar of incense into the Holy of Holies. And in chapters 7 and 8 and 9, what's being alluded to most often, and we'll see this especially as we go into chapter 10, is that Day of Atonement. Now, inside the Holy of Holies... There was only one piece of furniture other than that day when the altar of incense was placed in it, and that was the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which again was a very uh, small piece of furniture. It's a wooden chest. It was just three feet, nine inches long. Three feet, nine inches long. It was two feet, three inches wide, and it was two feet, three inches high. Inside the Ark, there were placed three items. There was the golden jar holding uh, the manna. Uh, and you remember what the manna was, angel's food. It was the uh, food that God supernaturally provided His people in the wilderness to sustain them. Remember every morning when they would get up, God would bring the manna down, and they would just pick that up, and uh, that sustained them through the wilderness years. And then there was Aaron's uh, rod that had budded. And the significance of that 
if you go back in the Old Testament, is this authenticated his priesthood. It, was, it happened on an occasion when there was a rebellion against Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And you might remember the occasion God destroyed a number of people in that rebellion. And then uh, right after the rebellion, he told Aaron to lay down his rod uh, with a lot of the other key leaders from the tribes. And overnight, Aaron's uh, rod budded, uh, indicating God's blessing on Aaron and and the Levitical uh, priesthood. Uh, And then, of course, there was the table of covenant, the Ten Commandments, the table of stone was contained within the ark. Now, on top of the ark was an absolutely beautiful mercy seat that was made of pure gold. And on each uh, end, there was a golden uh, cherub, uh, an angel. Uh, The mercy seat, of course, is a symbol, and this is absolutely beautiful. It's a symbol of the propitiation of Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've talked about this uh, in a previous sermon series. I know that word propitiation is a big, long word, but it it simply means that Jesus' death satisfied God's justice. That That He took God's wrath for us to pay the penalty for our sin. So that mercy seat, what it represented is that Jesus' death, that the shedding of His blood would cover our sins and restore us in our relationship to God. Now, that's a brief overview, but the most important truth to see in all of this is that the Old Testament tabernacle, as beautiful as it was, was filled with nothing but symbols. There was no spiritual reality. It simply pointed people to the coming Messiah. And it's pretty obvious that when the Messiah would come, you would what? You would drop the symbols to embrace the real deal. A matter of fact, in both the Old and the New Covenant, uh, salvation was through faith in Christ alone. You and I look back to what Christ accomplished, placing our faith in Him. In the Old Testament, through the wonderful symbols and pictures that they received in the tabernacle and other aspects of the Old Covenant, they looked forward and placed their faith in the coming Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. Faith has always been the means of salvation. Uh, faith uh, through which we receive uh, God's, God's grace. Uh, now think about this as well. This would mean, after Christ's coming, if you insisted to cling to the symbols, in essence, you would be making those symbols idols and rejecting Jesus. And this is why the writer says, it's absolutely foolish for you to toy with the idea of going back to your old religious practices because they've been made obsolete now. And now you have the real thing, Jesus who can meet every need that you have. Look at the third limitation to Old Covenant worship. God's presence was inaccessible to the worshiper. God's presence was inaccessible to the worshiper. Look at verses 6 through 8. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, that's the holy place, performing the divine worship, but into the second Only the high priest enters. The second is what? The Holy of Holies. Once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And then verse 8 is the conclusion. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place 
That way into God's immediate presence has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Did you remember a moment ago when we were describing the tabernacle? Who could enter the holy place? Only the priest. Who could enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest and only one time a year. The common people had absolutely no access to God's presence. Now, in contrast, you come to the New Covenant, and let me ask you a question. Who has access to the very Holy of Holies? Who now has access to the very immediate presence of God? Every one of God's people, every person that places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And how often do we have access? 24-7, when you get up in the morning, when you get into the afternoon, the evening, wake up at night, you can't sleep. God's presence is there, and you can access His presence through the wonderful blessings of the new covenant. Look at the fourth limitation of old covenant worship The sacrifices were inadequate to cleanse the worshiper. The sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, were totally inadequate to cleanse the worshiper. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, which is a symbol for the present time, referring to the tabernacle. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered. Now, notice now, here's the key phrase. Which cannot, cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. In other words, it's saying these animal sacrifices could not cleanse man of his guilt. It could not bring relief to that conscience that would condemn. I mean, all the animal sacrifices did was to make them ceremonially clean, to be involved in the worship and the community of God's people. But we were looking for a time in the future, this time of reformation. That's, re- that's a reference to when Jesus would come and establish the new covenant. See, the, the blood of animal sacrifices could never cleanse man's heart. It could never erase the guilt of man's conscience. And, and again, as I mentioned, the only thing it achieved was to make them ceremonially clean. It, 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 it simply what? Don't miss this. It, point, it was pointing them to Jesus. It was pointing them to Jesus. It wasn't able to do what Jesus was going to do, but it was pointing them, getting them ready, getting their expectations up so that they would put their faith in that coming Messiah and look to Him. Now, let's turn the corner and begin to look now at the superiority of the new covenant worship in contrast. Number one, where in the Old Testament covenant we come to an earthly sanctuary, we come here to Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. See, since the tabernacle in the Old Covenant was patterned after the true sanctuary in heaven... Now that we have Jesus as our high priest in the greater and the more perfect sanctuary, we're back to that truth. There's no longer a need for the pattern. There's no longer a need for the symbols. They've all been made obsolete. Look at the second superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. We receive eternal redemption. We receive eternal 
redemption. Look at verse 12. It says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, the simple point is, Jesus' blood accomplished what animal, animal blood could never accomplish. And when you think about it, how could animal blood ever solve the problem of human sin? See, animal blood was carried into the Holy of Holies by the high priest to cover his sins and the sins of his people. But that had to be what? Repeated year after year after year after year after year. Clearly indicating that the old covenant never provided a permanent solution to man's sin problem. It was again pointing us to the Lamb of God who would come and finally take away the sins of the world and offer salvation to all who would put their faith in Him. See, Jesus entered, this is saying, the Holy of Holies in the true heavenly sanctuary. And how did He enter? He entered through His blood that He shed as He died there as a substitute for you and me, as He died for our sins. And after His once and for all death on the cross, as He rose to that heavenly sanctuary, He has secured what for us? Eternal redemption. And just reflect on that a moment. How long is He eternal? Forever. So once and for all, through His once and for, one sacrifice that was made for all men, He has secured an eternal redemption for those who put their trust in Him. And that eternal redemption is not based on what? It's not based on our merit. It's not based on our works, our efforts to gain God's approval. It's based solely on what? The finished work of Jesus Christ. He accomplished for me what I could never accomplish for myself, and salvation comes through trusting Him. And then look at the last point this morning that shows us why the new covenant is so much superior to the old covenant. Our conscience is cleansed, is cleansed from the defilement of sin and dead works. Look at verses 13 and 14. Two of the most beautiful verses, I believe, in the entire book of Hebrews. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now let me see if I can just really open this up for you, because it, it, it's a... Circle that phrase or underline it, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling. He refer, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the ashes of a heifer being sprinkled on the Israelites, which would, notice it says, uh, would bring a cleansing to the flesh. And he uses that, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling, as a, another symbol, as another figure to show us what the blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes. Now, what he's referring to is something that was laid down in Numbers 19. And, uh, you know, just don't have time to go into all the detail, but to make it very, very simple, there are a lot of things that could happen with an Israelite that would make him ceremonially unclean. And when he would become ceremonially unclean, he could not participate in worship, he couldn't, communicate, he couldn't participate in community with the people until he went through certain rites which cleansed him in the flesh externally 
opening the door for him to get back involved in worship and communion. For example, one of those things were if you touched a dead person. In the Old Testament, if an Israelite touched a dead person, you know, one of your relatives, you're standing by their bedside, and you're there when they die, and you embrace them, you would become ceremonially unclean. And there were a number of other ways you could become ceremonially unclean. Well, what was laid down as a provision for that is the priest was commanded to take a red heifer, and he would, of course, sacrifice that red heifer. He would sprinkle its blood in the tabernacle, and then he was told to take the body of that heifer, that calf, outside the camp. We're talking about not in the tabernacle, not in that outer court. I mean, outside the camp where uh, Israel uh, was residing at that particular time, and he was to burn that heifer, totally burn it to where there was nothing left but ashes. And then there were special barrels that they made, and they literally put those ashes in the barrel. And then if you were to become ceremonially unclean, you would have to go. It was a very simple procedure, and they would mix some of those ashes with water, and that would be sprinkled on you. And then they would do it one other time after seven days. And then at that point, you were pronounced clean. And you could fully get engaged in worship in the community of God's people. Now, the thing you need to see is, in this passage, he's saying that is a symbol of the blood of Christ, which does so much more. And look at it this way. And such a beautiful thought. Ashes cannot be burned again. Right? Because they've already been burned. Ashes is what's left, what? After the fire falls. Matter of fact, it's sort of like a memorial to the work of the fire. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, your sins, my sins, were placed on Him, right? You know, let's say this Bible represents your life, and here's your birth certificate, and here's your death certificate, and here's the record of your life. And, yeah, there's going to be some good things in here, good efforts on your part, good works, but there's also going to be the what? The bad. Uh, There's going to be sin of commission and omission, Uh, sins that are done in conduct, sins that are done in attitude and thought life, go on and on. And, of course, that is our problem. That, that, That record of my life, my sin, stands between me and God. And the reason Jesus left heaven and came to this earth was so that He could die on the cross. And when He died on the cross, the record of your life was what? Placed on Jesus. And He died for the penalty of your sin. Through His death, He canceled that sin debt out. But what you need to understand is, what happened for Him to do that, He literally became the target of his father's angry, of his father's anger, of the fury of his father's fiery wrath on the cross. That's why on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why me have you forsaken? Because in that moment he became who you are as sin, that he might die for you. But Jesus put the fire out, didn't he? And that blood is analogous to the ashes of a heifer because the blood 
represents what? A judgment that's been finished. A judgment that's been cleaned. That's the beauty of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks of His death and that judgment is finished. That judgment is complete for all those that put their trust in Him. So the writer is saying as we come to Jesus, we get something much more than just an external washing to where we become ceremonially clean. No, through the blood of Jesus, He literally cleanses our conscience from guilt and its stain, and He delivers us, I love this, He delivers us from, what does it say? Dead works to serve a living God. You say, well, what are dead works? What are dead works? Well, the Bible only talks about three different kinds of works. There's good works. You know, we've been created in Christ Jesus to walk in those good works that He has preordained for us. Then, of course, there's the bad, there's the evil works, which it's obvious we know what that is. What are dead works? Dead works, now listen, dead works are all the things that we do that we think is going to make us a better Christian and get a better standing before God. You know, if I just read my Bible more, I'll get closer. If I would just be more consistent in my devotions, if I just loved my wife better, we go on and on and on. If I, if I, if I would just take up to witness more. And, and we all do this. We develop, you know, if, if I could just do these things, you know, I, I, I could get in closer with God and, and I'd have a better relationship with Him. Those are dead works. Because that is our attempt to what? To garnish or gain God's approval. And folks, the point that this passage is making as a result of Christ's work on the cross, when judgment was made complete and finished, there's nothing left for us to do. If you are a believer, you have God's presence. You have His love, His unchanging love that the choir sung about, His amazing grace. And it's not based on the fact whether you do good or you do bad. It's yours by virtue of faith in Jesus when He canceled out your sin debt and His righteousness was imputed to you. So now I am set free to serve Him what? Out of just a pure heart of love and delight as I show my appreciation and adoration to Him. You know, when uh, I'll close with this. Um, last week I was sharing with you about my uh, testimony, about when I came to know Christ, and how God not only delivered me from my guilt, uh, but also from the power of sin, and gave me uh, an opportunity through His grace to walk away from a lot of strongholds, to walk in newness of life. And I'll never forget, I had not been saved very, very long, I was uh, at a Bible college up in the D.C. area, Washington uh, Bible College, and it was my habit of, forgive me for all the tears, but these are just very good memories, uh, thinking back in those days. It was my habit late at night, a lot of times I would leave my dorm room and I would go down into the college chapel, and of course it would be pitch dark. But on the back of the wall, there was a cross that always remained lit. And, it, and I would just go in there and uh, just reflect on the cross and what Jesus had done for me and, and uh, use that as a time of just worship and, uh, and prayer. And I'll never forget one night, I got in there, and I, I just cannot express, but I know you understand because we all ex- have experiences like this. I just became overwhelmed. Uh, 
with the things I had done in my past, uh, my guilt, um, just just all of that. And, uh, and, and, the, and the thought just hit me, you know, man, what right do I have uh, to come to God? What right do I have to come into God's presence and, and, and to know and appropriate uh, His blessings? And I'll never forget, God so powerfully spoke to my heart in that moment. He said, Andy, for years... You dishonored me. You deliberately, you intentionally, after being told the truth, you rejected it. You turned your back to do your own thing, to walk in sin and selfishness and pride and arrogance. And then he said, and now you're going to even dishonor me more and even grieve me deeper by not trusting in what I did for you and accepting my mercy, receiving my grace to know my love. And let me say this as gently as I can, but let me say it in a firm way. One of the biggest things I hear in counseling from people to come in, I'm talking about believers. You know, there's some huge failure in their life, and they say, I just can't forgive myself. I hear that over and over again. If I could just forgive myself. Can I gently but firmly tell you what is at the root of that problem right there? It's pride. Nothing more. I don't mean to offend anybody, but you need to see it's pride and arrogance. Because think about what you're doing. You're saying, I am refusing to accept God's judgment for my sin that was accomplished through Jesus. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm refusing to believe it, or I'm refusing it was enough to cleanse me and to set me free. And so what we need to really do when we have struggles there, we just need to humble ourselves and say, God, open my eyes to Jesus and His blood and what He's accomplished for me. And may I accept it to be delivered from those dead works, my attempts to earn your favor, and may I just be set free to love you at a pure delight and to serve you with all the energy of my soul, not because I'm trying to get your favor, but because I have your favor, and I just want to live my life in gratitude to you, in adoration to you. Amen? So again, we continue to see this theme develop that the new covenant is so much superior to the old covenant. And of course, to the Hebrew Christians, the point was, so why would you flirt with going back to something that's made obsolete where you're going to miss Jesus and all His wonderful blessings? And of course, the benefit for us is to see these wonderful blessings and to appropriate them. Father, thank You for the uh, simple but powerful truth of today's message. Uh, Thank you that through Christ we have obtained an eternal redemption. And thank you that that eternal redemption is open to all that are here this morning that would not know you. And Father, thank you through the blood of Jesus Christ that our conscience has been cleansed from guilt, has been cleansed from the stain of guilt to set us free to serve you uh, out of hearts of love, gratitude, and adoration. So, Lord... uh, 
open our eyes to see the majesty, the beauty, magnificence of our Savior Jesus. Uh, Open our eyes to understand exactly what He accomplished for us. And then, Lord, give us the reliance on You, the faith in You, uh, to appropriate all that is ours, uh, that You have, uh, uh, that is our inheritance through the new covenant. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.